Good morning, and welcome morning. to our Come and Reason Bible Study class. Today we're going to continue with the format we introduced last week, where Russell and I will have the class together instead of um, me just by myself, and hopefully in the near future we'll be able to meet again together. We still haven't gotten word on whether the facility where we meet will be available for us the first in June. It was initially said that it would be the, the first weekend in June, but we haven't got final confirmation on that. But we're hoping in a couple of weekends we'll be able to meet together again. But we, we will um, keep you posted on that. A couple of announcements. If you haven't already been following us on YouTube, please go and sign up for our YouTube channel, and you'll get notified when we have new, new YouTube videos that come up. And then follow us on Facebook as well, or subscribe to the YouTube channel, and then follow us on Facebook where the announcements will come along, let you know the news things. And, and we are putting new things on Facebook most of the days of the week, like the blog posting and the, and the, uh, and the reasonettes and other inspirational um, postings that will come along throughout the week. We've had some personal and private prayer requests that were emailed to us this week, and so as uh, Russell prays for us, we just want to remember the prayer requests that have come in. Russell, if you'd open with prayer for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, pause in, in your day to acknowledge you as our Redeemer and Creator, and we want to lift up those who uh, who have emailed requests, uh, who are struggling for whatever reason. You know, you know their hearts, you know their their wishes, and you know their struggles. And we ask that you intervene in, in their issues as uh, as you see fit and in accordance with your will. Uh, we pray for our class, we pray for our characters, uh, we pray for our nation. And, and we thank you for the interventions to to hold back the tide of sin, uh, starting in the Garden of Eden, continuing all the way down through history to the restraining of the four winds of strife until uh, the sealing can be done. Uh, please continue to grace uh, our class and, and help us uh, accelerate the return of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Alrighty, so we are doing lesson number 10 in the study guide, How to Interpret Scripture, and the title is The Bible as History. And the lesson points out that the Bible has constituted history, meaning that uh, it records events as they occurred in history in a linear fashion. Now, there are a variety of ways to approach Scripture. If one uses the wrong approach, then one can take the um, same Bible texts and the same Bible stories and come to divergent conclusions. Now I'm going to list some of the different ways people assume or understand the book of Scripture, the Bible, and how it can, um, with that understanding, warp how they understand what they read. So here are some of the different ways people look at the Bible. The Bible is a storybook written by people ignorant of reality who were trying their best to describe what was happening. The Bible is history with religious beliefs that were borrowed from multiple other religions in the region. The Bible is a book of myths, not to be taken seriously, but metaphorically. The Bible's stories are standalone stories that teach us the power of God and the principles of right and wrong. Do right and God blesses, and do wrong and God punishes. The Bible is to be understood through imposed law, lenses. Uh, God is the supreme authority who makes up laws, and we are expected to obey, and if we don't, God's justice requires that he punish. There are two dispensations, the Old Covenant recorded in the Old Testament, in which salvation was achieved through law and animal sacrifice, and the New Covenant recorded in the New Testament, in which salvation is by grace through faith and the blood payment of a human sacrifice, Jesus, uh, to his Father. 
the Bible is to be taken literally, just as it reads, without understanding figures of speech, metaphor, and symbols. The Bible is the authoritative source of all truth. And I want to comment, how many of you thought, well, that's right, the Bible is the authoritative source of all truth? No. The Bible is the authoritative source of all truth necessary for salvation, or you could say authoritative source of saving truth. The truth about God, the origins of, of humanity and sin, the plan of salvation. Everything necessary for salvation. But it is not the authoritative source of truth on the best manufacturing techniques for ink pens. Or printing presses. Or metallurgy. Or physical therapy techniques. So, and this is important because some people believe that the Bible is the authoritative source on all truth. And they, thus they try to, to find truth that the Bible is never intended for, and apply it in circumstances where it was not revealing truth. So all these approaches are flawed. The approach that I believe helps us get accurate truth about God is that the Bible is the inspired record, but we have to understand God as creator and his laws as design laws. Use the integrative evidence-based approach where when there are uh, the different threads giving evidence on the same topic, scripture, science, experience, or scripture, nature, experience, when all of them do give evidence on the same topic, we harmonize them. Taking all 66 books together as one dispensation, one God, one human race, one sin problem, one solution to the sin problem, God working through history to provide that solution, one dispensation, not multiple dispensations, appropriately interpreting Figures of speech and metaphors and similes and parables rather than taking things literally as they read. Refraining from using the Bible to teach things it's not intended to teach. Examples of extreme literalism and using the Bible to teach or apply to things it was never intended to do would be uh, the instruction in Old Testament about for the Jewish people in the wilderness not to start fires on Sabbath means that it applies to electrical circuitry in a modern world, and therefore you can't turn switches on and off, so you have to have computer programs that will turn your ele electricity lights on and off and start your ovens, and, and then if you live in places like this and buildings have elevators, you program them on the Sabbath to, to stop at every floor up and every floor down all day long so people can get on and off without pushing the button. If you push the button, you start a fire. So we're taking something very literalistically and applying it to things that was never intended to apply to or you think he's joking but this this kind of thing actually happens in jerusalem and tel aviv in yes, israel that's exactly right the buildings are programmed to do that because the the they believe the bible is teaching something it's not teaching or the new testament never mentions mu musical instruments in worship therefore we can only worship god in the new dispensation the new testament era because we have two dispensations with our voices. We can't use musical instruments in a worship service. Again, using the Bible to teach something it was never intended to teach. Or, the Bible is a book on physics of motion, the laws of motion. And therefore, when the Bible refers to the sun rising in the east and setting in the west, or the sun standing still in, in the battle of Joshua there, that it is actually teaching us about how the sun moves around the earth. That's, that should be understood. It's, it's a book on physics and the, and the laws of heavenly bodies. No, it's not. It's not designed to teach that. 
That's a hyper-literalism and a misapplication of the Bible. But with our method in mind, the, the larger view... Evidence-based. Through integrative evidence-based approach, God's laws as design laws, that we see the Old Testament as the process of God working to bring Messiah, and Satan and evil forces working to not only corrupt human beings, but to obstruct the plan of salvation and prevent Messiah from coming to earth. That is the focus, the, the goal, the key. You see, if Jesus never comes to earth, the entire human species is lost. Jesus is the key, right there in Genesis 3. It, excuse me. It's not yeah. all. It, that's not God's only purpose. Uh, our memory text today tells us part of the purpose. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. God, God for was what con- purpose? Yeah, exactly. God was constantly working throughout the Old Testament to reveal Himself for, to His children. For what purpose did He bring them out of Egypt? For their healing, so they they could be a conduit to tell the rest of the world about about. The healing grace of God uh, and through, the design laws through <laughs> through through the designer Jesus Christ through the coming Messiah. Yes, this is the key. The, the the whole plan of salvation. The people of Israel were chosen. Adam's descendants, bringing them out of Egypt, establishing them in a land, was all for the purpose of of the coming Messiah. Without Jesus, all, everything else that happened in the Old Testament, if Jesus never comes to Earth, is never incarnate, it's meaningless and purposeless. The whole central issue hinges on Jesus coming incarnate and achieving the victory he achieved as a human being. So that's the real key to understanding the scripture. And then with his victory, and, and, so, and we see that in the Old Testament, certainly Satan is trying to corrupt, but he's trying to corrupt for the purpose of, of stopping the plan of salvation and perhaps recruit more non-human beings, angels, for instance. You see in the book of Job, he's up in heaven trying to spread his lies still. And so he, if, if Jesus doesn't come, not only does the human race lost, perhaps the rebellion spreads further in the non-human intelligences in the universe. So Jesus is the key. So with Jesus' victory at the cross, the rebellion's overthrown, Satan's rebellion's overthrown, the rest of the sinless beings in the universe don't have time for him, won't listen to him, his activities are restricted to earth because we're the only ones that listen to him anymore. The species human is redeemed in the person of Jesus, he's fully human, so we have a sinless human being who's the head of humanity, and humanity and the earth now is redeemed, the only question is how many other specimens of humanity join him and partake of what he's provided. So that's really the key. So the key is Jesus. With this in mind, the stories of the Bible fall into place. The focus of the Bible falls into place. We can understand this history from the beginning. Immediately after Adam's fall, God is working to reveal the truth about himself, about the coming Messiah, about the plan of salvation, seeking to heal hearts and minds. But Satan is right there hardening hearts and minds to distort the plan of salvation. So we see... Satan inspires Cain to reject humble trust in a coming Messiah and to embrace pride in his own hard work and to take the fruits of his hard work to offer to God as a payment and a merit to merit his salvation. I've done this good stuff. Here's how what I've worked. I'll offer that to you. Okay, this is uh, Satan's method. Abel humbly accepts his sin condition, puts his faith and trust in the promised Messiah, teaches the plan through 
acting out the symbols, and Satan stirs up jealousy in Cain for what purpose? To kill the source of light and truth who's going to teach the truth about the plan of salvation. Let's shut that down. Let's stop the, the avenue for Messiah. So kills the, the, uh, the, the, the righteous son. And it's interesting that Jesus on earth referred to Abel as one of the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was. He was a spokesperson for God. There you go. You know, from He talks about the, the guy that was killed in, in front of the columns all the way back to Abel. Yep. Yes. Max wonders, would God become incarnate if Adam and Eve had not sinned? There would have been no reason for him to become incarnate. See, Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and they had the capacity, and this was the purpose of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowing by experience good or evil, Adam and Eve would make a choice, and they would choose to trust God, reject lies, and know goodness, no righteousness, no holiness in their character. And so it is a tree where they will know it. Or they will choose to believe lies, and in the believing lies that will break the circle of love and trust, they will be incited in fear and selfishness, they'll act in self-centeredness, and they will know evil, breaking from God's design, and know fear, self-centeredness, and all the heartache and pain that came. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil were for Adam to understand and decide what they will know in heart, in mind, in character, what they will become. Had they chosen the good, they would have solidified in righteousness, and we would have a righteous human species, like we have right righteous angels in heaven and there had been no need for christ to come so no i don't think that would have would have been necessary so we're looking at this process the story of the uh of the controversy between god working after they fell to bring messiah and satan working against it satan leading the world into rebellion against god seeking to hearten hearts and minds so there's no one to work with god it's at the time of the flood one righteous man left god intervenes not to punish sin but to keep open avenue for messiah and he does it in such a way that there's a period of time that all those who heard the preaching of noah have opportunity they're not vaporized with no more opportunity they have an opportunity with the crisis impending upon them that they could humble themselves and say you know what lord we were rebellious like the thief on the cross remember us when you come into your kingdom uh who knows how many might have turned at that time we don't know we'll find out in the hereafter and then changing the face of the earth so that that it will be harder for people's character to be corrupted because it will require more work just to plant food and keep food on the table and stay warm from the elements, and therefore it's less time for... And more of an animal-based diet. Yeah, shortening the lifespans, yeah. Same problem with the Tower of Babel. Satan working to unify the world in rebellion and harden hearts. God intervening to keep open avenue for Messiah. The focus then moves to Abraham and, and the, his family because it is through Abraham's family the Messiah is going to come. The Bible no longer needs to focus on the hot tire race. We can now focus down on this family, and it keeps narrowing down from the 12 to the 2 to the tribe of Judah to the family of David, ultimately until the Messiah comes, because that is the key to understanding Scripture. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. The monarchy of David and Solomon represents the golden age in Israel, Israel's history. But what if David and Solomon did not exist, as some have claimed? What if their kingdom was not as extensive as the Bible describes, as some have also claimed? Without David, there would be no Jerusalem, and the capital uh, of the nation. Without David, there would be no temple built by his son Solomon. Finally, without David, there would be no future Messiah, for it is through the line of David that the Messiah is promised. Israelite history would need to be completely re rewritten. Yet that history as it reads in scripture, is precisely what gives Israel and the church its unique role and mission. So first thing I want to point out, now they, they, they list this as 
the golden age in Israel's history. Thought about that. Hmm. The so-called golden age. This golden age, was this God's plan for Israel? Or was God working plan B because his plan A, Israel, the people, rejected? Well, if you're not sure, I will read um, out of 1 Samuel 8, 10, 10 through 22. Samuel told all, those, all, all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and others will uh, to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariot. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servant and maid servants. And the best of your cattle and donkey he will use for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock, and, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered him, listen to them and give them a king. Now, multiple things come to mind. This is the golden age? Hmm. Multiple things come to my mind as I read this. Do we hear this as a standalone story? Or do we see it as part of a larger reality, the great controversy, man fallen into sin, God working to bring salvation, Satan working to corrupt humanity and obstruct the plan of salvation, the coming Messiah? What do we see? What did God describe would be the result of their request? It's, it's right there. A ruling elite monarchy, aristocracy, in which the ruling elite exploits the people for the benefit of the aristocracy. Whose form of government is this? This is Satan's form of government. Through all human history, Satan wants to ride over and oppress and exploit for his own advantage. It's the exact opposite of a serving God who humbled himself in the form of a servant to uplift and give of himself. And what happens when we do this, the masses become injured or damaged. And this is the form of every human government. What did the people want? Why did they want this? It said it in the text. According to text, they wanted this so they could be like the other nations. It's fashionable. What did Jesus say about the kingdoms of the world? His kingdom is not of this world. But they want the gold, they want, and the golden age is like the world. This isn't God's kingdom. This isn't God's design. They didn't want God's methods. They wanted to be like the world. And what did it get them? Do you see how... This process of the people requesting to have a government like the world was an attack on God's plan by Satan to bring in the methods and principles of exploitation, domination, control, imperialism that damage and destroys the image of God in people and thereby harden hearts. In fact, what happened to the leadership? Once they had kings, who led them into false worship of false gods over and over again? It was this, these kings, these, uh, this aristocracy, over and over again, leading them into paganism. 
They never became a nation of priests to evangelize the world and prepare the world for Messiah because they became like the world and became elitists and self-centered nationalists. Exclusivists. A top-down government, not a bottom-up. That's right. So in this so-called golden age, we find the great controversy is again being played out with Satan subverting God's plan with his own imperial law methods. God's plan was for the people to be the kingdom of priests and go out and share the world. Now consider what we saw in the wilderness after he, after he leads him out of Egypt. Contrast the difference when God was the actual king that they were following in the wilderness. God provided food for them. They did not have to plant and give their food to the king. God is giving them manna every day and providing food for them. God provided water for them. God sustained their clothing so it didn't wear out. They didn't have people making clothing for the king and taking uh, taxing. God provided good health so they didn't get sick. Shade in the daytime. Shade in the daytime. And light at night. And, and, and light and heat at night, yes. God was giving of himself to support and provide for their health and welfare. He instructed them only uh, on those instructions which were good for their character. So, he instructed them to bring offerings to support the tabernacle. Gold, silver, the mirrors, uh, etc. But for what purpose? Did he asked for these offerings because he needed them to uplift him, to build him up, to enrich him, to do good for him in some way. No. This is part of his plan of salvation. It was for their character development. They needed to practice God's methods in, they need to engage or put God's methods into practice. That's how you get better at something. You develop skill at something. And so they needed to become givers, not takers. They need to open the channels of love. They need to participate by action. They need to commit themselves and invest their energies in the purpose of God. And so this is why he had them bring offerings, not because he needed them. Because that's how life's designed to operate. That's the, the law of giving. There the you law go. Of worship. The law of love. The law of exertion. And that's what we do here at Common Reason Ministries. And many of you participate with that, and you know the blessings of that. The various regulations he set up were not for God's benefit, or to control, or to dominate, but for the health and protection of the people, and help them mature and grow up, to lead them to ever increasing character development. This is what was happening. But what did they do? They rejected God's plan and God's methods and substituted their own. We want me. And what do we see? We see God's patience, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, who meets them where they are in order to lead them where he would like them to be. So the point of the lesson to establish uh, is to establish King David and King Solomon as real people who, who lived in real times, and there is archaeological evidence to support them as real historic figures. We have no dispute with that. And what would be the purpose? They asked the question. Very brief. It's very straightforward. What would be the purpose of arguing David never existed or he's a fig- fictional character? Why would, why would Satan try to put that lie out there? Because it, it ultimately is not a lie against David. It's a lie against his descendant, Jesus. Mm. Okay, and that's why to undermine anybody's belief in the Messiah. If David never existed, then he couldn't have had a, a descendant who was the Messiah. Monday's lesson reviews the history of King Hezekiah when Isaiah was the prophet and the Assyrians attacked Judah. And how the Assyrians sacked several cities in Judah as they marched towards Jerusalem. And Hezekiah turned to the Lord. We know this, brought the singers to praise the Lord out and so forth. 
and how he was promised uh, by the prophet Isaiah that uh, these Assyrians would not breach the walls of Jerusalem. And, in fact, they didn't. An angel of the Lord came and overthrew the 180,000 Assyrian army, if you remember. The lesson gives archaeological evidence that all of these individuals are found in recorded documents outside the Bible, so they're real historic figures. Do we see this story as a standalone story? Just another example, and this is how I've heard it many times. See if you've heard it this way in the children's Bible story books. An example of how when you trust God, he delivers us from our enemies. But if we don't, he doesn't deliver. Worse, if we don't trust him, he actually destroys us, like he was destroying the Assyrians. So God blesses you if you trust him, he destroys you if you don't. Without understanding... Have you seen it that way? Oh, yes. Okay, that's a standalone story. Without understanding the great controversy, the narrative, the coming Messiah, then we get this type of false conclusion leading to the health wellness gospel. Do the right thing, keep the right rules, um, you know, the right Sabbath observance, um, the, the right prayer, uh, then God blesses you with health and wealth. But if you don't, then God either withholds the blessing, or worse, punishes you. Well, wasn't that the attitude of the two, um, the two beggars who went out to throw themselves on the mercy of the Assyrian camp the next morning? And they found it empty, and, and they started looting it. And they said, oh, we better go tell someone, or else we're going to be judged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is the idea. Standalone story, or do you see again in the story the plan of salvation being worked out? The, uh, the Messiah, it really is the center. So, but the idea, let, let's take on this idea, the health wellness idea. If you don't worship the true God, if you worship pagan gods, if you teach falsehood about God, then God punishes you. This is a common, is, this is a common idea taught, isn't it? It's everywhere. Okay, well then, let's look at a little human history. At the very same time Hezekiah is alive, during this time, the Zhao dynasty rules in China. Did God punish the Chinese who were under the Zhao dynasty at this time? They promoted, they did not promote Yahweh. They established the idea of the mandate of heaven, which gave them the authority, the Zhao rulers and emperors, uh, to take wealth from uh, other people in order to support their regime. They had the mandate of heaven. Sounds familiar. During this time, Confucius, who founded Confucius, Confuciusism, and Lit Zhao, who founded Taoism, lived and wrote their philosophies, did God punish these people for failing to follow him during this very same time? And we're going to take this story. Here's an example of God punishing the Assyrians and, and, uh, and uh, blessing Hezekiah. Well, did God punish the Chinese? No, he did not. Why not? Because the theory that God inflicts punishment is false. It's the doctrine of devils. It's the doctrine of Satan. How about this? During the same time in human history as Hezekiah, that Chavin Empire ruled portions of South America. Did, and this was a polytheistic society, a pagan society. Did God punish the Chavin society because they were pagan and polytheistic? No. Why not? Because the theory that God punishes people or even needs to punish people for false worship or for not obeying him is a lie. It's Satan's lie from the very beginning. And I love this quotation from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church revealing what the Seventh-day Adventist Church was supposed to teach. It's from a book called Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. 
that justice was inconsistent with mercy. You see, justice requires punishment. Mercy relieves punishment. They're opposites. They can't be consistent. That's the entire human law model. You see it in every law and order or type program like that in which they're seeking justice, let's punish the lawbreaker, or we'll seek mercy, let's forgive or pardon them. They're constants and they're opposites because it's based on imposed law, and imposed law has no inherent consequence. Keep going with the quote. This is Satan's view from the beginning, that justice is inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Who, when you hear the argument, God, in order to be just, must punish sin, you are hearing the words of the liar, the serpent, from the beginning. Keep going with the quote. And if Satan should remit, uh, Satan says, and if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice, because under imperial law, justice requires, and this is, this is how you'll hear it. Because they accept the lie that God's law functions like human law, just a system of rules, not design protocols, they will hear, well, if you break the law, you have to have accountability. If there's no accountability, it's unfair. God's not an unfair God. Justice requires that the lawbreaker be punished, but God loved us so much, he didn't want to punish us, so he sent Jesus to take all the sins that were put on him, and then God punished Jesus in our place because he's a God of justice, and justice so the sin is punished. And God figured out a way where he could punish the sin while he pardons the sinner, and that's why he punished Jesus in our place. This is all paganism. It's fraudulent. When you understand design law, then you understand that those who break God's law injure themselves, take them out of harmony with how life is built, and the designer is working through Christ to bring us back into harmony, to heal the brokenness in us and restore us. And if he does nothing, we will die of sin. Sin is a terminal condition. Thus, John the Baptist said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the condition, the terminal disease of sin. John the Baptist didn't say, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of the world, which is what common, penal, fraudulent Christianity teaches. So, it was proved, Satan declared, that the law could not be obeyed, man could not be forgiven, because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must ever be shut out of God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. What a fraud. Satan's lie from the beginning. God's law functions like human law. God must inflict punishment. Some take the Bible stories like Hezekiah and misapply it to teach the very lie that uh, God was punishing the Assyrians and blessing. No, what God was doing, Satan was inspiring the Assyrians to come and attack the uh, avenue through which Messiah, because he wants to destroy those people so he can shut down the plan of salvation, and God intervened to keep open the plan of salvation. That's what's really happening there. So, this is why God gave them kings, when we understand that. What we must understand, God cannot heal hearts and minds without the willing agreement of the participants of the sentient being. We have to participate. He can't heal your heart and mind without your cooperation. If he were to use power to try and inflict, impose, write in his laws that says metaphorically, I write my law in your hearts and minds, if he did that without your willing participation, then he overwrites your individuality. He erases you, the person you are, and creates a robot, a machine. So the only way God can heal us is by 
are willing cooperation and participation. This is why he gave them kings. Because he's teaching them the better way. He's warning them, he's reproving them, he's giving them truth. But they have to choose the truth. And because they rejected it, God has a choice. Let them go completely or let them have what they want, suffer the con- warn them, suffer the consequences of it, and when they're suffering the consequences of their stand by them to begin picking up the pieces, healing them, and teaching them when they're ready to listen. And that's what we find throughout all human history. How many of you in your own life had a parent, or just God's word, warn you against some activity? You knew that it wasn't the thing to do. But you had it in your heart to do it anyway, so you did. And then you suffered the consequence. I've done that. I know that. Those are the painful lessons. And then when I fell down crying, broken, hurt, praise God, he was there to comfort me, pick me up, not to point his finger, say, I told you so. No. To heal the brokenness and restore me and say, now you're ready to let me heal you and get you in the path of everlasting life. That's how it works. Think about the amount of learning that occurs when those consequences are suspended. If someone in your life suspends the consequences, like a, a well-meaning parent or loved one, suspends the consequences of you trying to touch the hot stove yep. or something, then no learning occurs. No learning. And in fact, well, it, it, yeah, it, it actually does. It it's learns, learning, yeah, but it, it... It learns a lot. Yes, correct. Okay? It yeah. learns that reality doesn't actually... So when we... This is, this is called codependency. Okay, when a and you see it most classically in families with addictions, where a child who's got an addiction um, indulges the addiction, and then they somebody intervenes to relieve them of their own consequence. So you get caught drunk driving, and rather uh, when they get pulled over, you intervene with the judge or the court to get it dismissed, and so there really is no consequence to the child. They they get away with it, so to speak. And so what they learn is there really actually isn't a consequence. It's all a matter of manipulating the system because the human law model can be manipulated. And so while you can get out of trouble with the human legal system this way, you can't get out of the brain damage and the character damage that happens as we perpetually persist in being out of harmony with God's design laws. It's unavoidable. Right. Okay? Wednesday's lesson. The lesson provides archaeological evidence to support that Jesus was a real historic figure, as well as other people who lived at that time, um, at the time of Jesus. And so this is a part of the uh, support. I, I... I actually don't really know of any arguments that ever really try to take the position that say, Jesus never lived, there was no person, he's a mythological figure like Santa Claus. I never have heard that argument. Maybe some of you have heard that there's arguments out there that say Jesus is just a made-up figure like Santa Claus. I've never heard that. The, the arguments I hear is, yes, Jesus was a, was a historic figure, but he was just a human prophet. Just a good man. He's just a good yeah. teacher. He's a good man, like like uh, like Buddha or Gandhi or somebody like this. This is the argument, but not that he didn't exist. He's just mythological. I've never heard that one. So, But why can we have confidence in rejecting the idea that Jesus was just a good man? Why can we be very confident in rejecting the idea he was only a human good man, like a Gandhi or a Buddha or somebody like that? Well, I'm going to give you a whole list. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies in the person of Jesus. The actual historic events that came true in his life. Numerous. I'm not going to go through them all. There are many, 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 and they all came true in his life. That gives us confidence that something more than just a human was going along there. What Jesus taught and what his life revealed. 
the complete and perfect revelation of God the Father and God's design laws as design laws. Jesus revealed this in his life. How he functioned, contrary to imperialism, the parables and teachings, all teaching how nature and reality works, not a system of rules that are arbitrarily enforced. His teachings were contrary to the human systems. Jesus' own testimony about himself and who he was. Either Jesus is, in fact, God the Son in human flesh, or he's delusional and a mentally ill person. Because I've had patients. I remember in my residency, I had a manic patient who came in the ER claiming and believing he was Jesus Christ. He was delusional. He was psychotic. Either Jesus is who he says he well, says he is and was. He used the term, I am, referring to himself, a reference to God. He said that he is the only one who has seen the Father. And he is one with the Father. And he's come from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. Either he is who he says he is, or he's delusional. You can't get, he's a good man who taught good things. And all those references about who he was drove the Pharisees crazy. Yes, it did. To mur- into murderous rage. Because they knew what he was saying. Right. They, were, he, they knew he was claiming to be God. Right. And so you can't, this idea that he was just a good man who taught good things, we don't say that about delusional people. Okay? Third, or fourth, the witness of the apostles. <clears throat> and the fact that they worshipped him, it says in Scripture. We don't worship good people. We only worship God. The empty tomb speaks volumes. The understanding that the entire Old Testament was teaching about the coming Messiah and what the coming Messiah was going to accomplish and how it was all accomplished in Jesus. So not just prophetic things, the actual accomplishments of what he needed to achieve and how he achieved them in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, did you notice... In all this list of reasons why we should reject the idea that Jesus was just a good man and embrace the truth that he was God in human flesh, did you notice that I did not reference any miracles? Or perhaps you could call the, the empty tomb a miracle. Okay, that one. But it's, it's also an observable fact. The tomb is empty. But I didn't reference any miracles, not because miracles are unimportant or that he didn't do them. He did them but because miracles are the least important evidence. All the other evidence without miracles is persuasive and conclusive. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus met his own disciples who were struggling with the events of the weekend, and he did not perform miracles for them. He took them through Scripture, and based on the evidences and weight of historical fulfillment that was achieved in his life, they were persuaded to the truth. And so... Evidence can be, uh, excuse me, miracles can be counterfeited. Yeah, I, I guess I would, I would take, go so far as to argue the resurrection wasn't a miracle. Yeah. Life is the default function of all the rest of the universe, except Earth. Life is the, life is the, is the only thing that results from being restored back to God's original design. So. No, I like how you the, say the, this. I mean, it's. So, so it this, had to happen, just like letting go of your of your stylus. That that's predictable consequence of restoring God's law back to humanity. That's right. Life has to happen. So when you yeah, I love I love this. And so when you hear 
um, when you understand design law and God's law upon which life is built, and we believe that Christ fully lived out God's law and rejected all sin, all deviations from God's law, what is the only result of perfection to God's law designed for life is life. Yeah, okay. It's not a miracle. So when you understand that, then you can understand a couple of um, various passages or quotes or texts that people will refer to. You will find in the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly prophesies to his disciples, I must go up to Jerusalem, be abused of men, die, and rise on the third day. He says this. This is a, this is a prophecy. Repeatedly. Destroy this temple. I'll rebuild Destroy it in three days. Destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it up in three days. Uh, Peter whips out the sword. He says, put away the sword. Do you, not, do you not want me to fulfill what I've come here to fulfill? I know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to achieve. I know what the outcome is going to be. I know what they're going to do to me. They're going to kill me, but this is the necessary path for me to achieve the outcome. And what's the outcome? Curing the human species from the sin condition and rising in a perfected humanity um, that, uh, that lives eternally. Now, one of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote, uh, Ellen White, for those who would like to know who wrote it, that Christ could not see through the portals of the tomb. Harmonize those two. Here he says repeatedly that he's going to die and he's going to rise again. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome. But he could not see through the portals of the tomb. How are those both in harmony? Because he was not giving, given supernatural prophetic view of future events. He didn't see the future as uh, the prophet Daniel saw future kingdoms rising and falling. He wasn't given a future view of reality where time, the, the curtain of time was pulled back and he could see the events. So he didn't see that. What he knew was what you said, the example. If I let go of this, you can predict what will happen. And what will happen is it falls because you know the design law of gravity. And therefore, you can predict when I let go of this, it will fall. You don't have the gift of prophecy. You haven't had time pulled back or the curtain pulled back so you can see an event. You're not seeing through the portals of time, but you are accurately able to predict the outcome. And that's what's happening here when Jesus predicts his resurrection. He knows when he restores God's law in the humanity he's assumed, and he eradicates the infection that he also partook of through his mother Mary, that, that infection that tempted him with fear and selfishness in Gethsemane when he was tempted in every point like we are yet without sin, when he destroys that, he rises again. So this is very predictable. I love this. Yes? Um, I wanted to bring this up because it was a bit of a lag, but now that we're talking about design law again, Olivia said, but what about Exodus 34-7? And so you've mentioned this before, but if you could just talk about it. It says in the New International Version, maintaining to love thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so maybe she hasn't heard about yeah. how so, to interpret that. So this, this is a translation, number one, that you're reading. And so the language punishment is an English word that's going in there. And so, so a, couple of, a couple of things to understand. Are you understanding the word punishment through your human law model? As in, there is no consequence for our sin, 
other than God uses his power to inflict it upon you. You can smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, shoot up with IV drugs, and God uses his power to make sure you get lung disease to punish you. And God uses his power to make sure that you have brain damage to punish you. In other words, there's a punishment that comes, but is the punishment an infliction from God, or is God instructing that when you break my laws, there are punishments? When you jump off a bridge, when you jump off a building, is there a punishment for doing that, broken legs and perhaps death. When you do that, is God sending his angels to inflict the punishment you would not otherwise receive, or is the punishment a consequence? And then passing down the generations, the sin passed down three and four generations, we now have documented with science, this is exactly what happens. When you engage in unhealthy practices in life, and this is including unhealthy belief systems, but uh, doing alcohol, drugs, tobacco, you epigenetically alter your DNA, you damage yourself physiologically, you pass those epigenetic structures down three and four generations, passing along vulnerabilities to disease, unwellness, uh, increasing um, self-centeredness, lustful passions, stronger impulses, less impulse control are passed on to your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. And so is, uh, when you read this language, are you reading it through the law of human law? It wouldn't happen except God has to punish you for it. He broke his rule. Or you're reading it through creation and God's design law, and therefore he's describing the consequences that come when you break his designs for life. And that's what I understand happening. Thursday's lesson. The lesson points out that the Bible records the history of people not only to give us historical events, but to demonstrate to us from history how faith changes lives and brings victory. What is faith? Okay, And very simply, faith is trust, confidence, belief, devotion that leads to action. That's what faith is. Based on evidence. Yeah, but we didn't evidence. ask what it was based on. Okay. okay, we just said what it is. The definition. All okay, right. so but it is our, our, our biblical faith is based on evidence. But what I, instead of going through that, because I've been through that many times in the Hebrew and the Greek word of of uh, hypostasis and so forth, we're not going to go through that. What I want to do this time is talk about how faith led to action that led to victory in God's people and the people's life from Hebrews chapter eleven, where the lesson points our our attention. And we're going to go through the lives listed, and I want you to notice the story. Paul not only lists the lives, but he's listing them, describing what we're talking about. How the battle between Christ and Satan is waging, between God's forces to bring the Messiah, and Satan's forces trying to obstruct the Messiah, and those who trust God can continually defeat Satan's attempt to shut down the avenue for Messiah in order for Messiah to come. So let's look at this. And this is the, how they're listed in order uh, by the writer of Hebrews. Abel. These are all the people who are victorious by faith. Abel. We already discussed how he trusted God and cooperated with God for the healing of his own heart and taught the plan of salvation to bring Messiah and how Satan worked against the truth, inspired Cain to kill him, closing or shutting down that source of truth and light. Enoch. We see God's ultimate plan. Those who trust God and walk with him are cured of sin, given immortal life, and taken from the world of sin. This is the promise we receive in Jesus, in the Messiah. Noah. Satan worked to harden the hearts of the human race, to shut down the avenue of Messiah. We see there was only one righteous man left on the earth, and God acts to keep open avenue through Messiah through Noah. Abraham. Trust God. And left, his, and left his family, 
moved to a new land, had a promised child in his old age. Abraham, through trust, experiences a new heart, becomes the father of the faithful. And his family were God's chosen helpers through which Messiah would come. The focus of the Bible narrows down now on this branch of the human family. Satan focuses energies on trying to destroy and corrupt this branch of the family in order to prevent Messiah from coming. Next, Sarah trusted God and was healed of infertility and was enabled to become a mother at age 90. Again, God's plan to bring forth Messiah carried forward by people who trusted him and were willing to cooperate with him. Isaac trusts God and voluntarily surrenders himself to be a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, cooperating with God to give the metaphorical evidence of the plan of salvation and help his father Abraham overcome his own fear and selfishness. This was Abraham's ultimate victory moment, where Abraham fully surrendered. Uh, Isaac was never going to be sacrificed. This was an opportunity for Abraham to exercise faith, and Isaac trusted God and enabled the lesson to go forward, and Abraham to have this victory and be sealed. Jacob, who struggled through his life with fear and selfishness, but who, with God's help, wrestled against his own fear and selfishness, and gained the victory by trusting in God over himself. And his name was changed to Israel, one who, with God, overcomes. That's what Israel means. We see in Jacob's life how Satan tempted him to give up and do things his own way. To give up on God, do things his own way. He was always calculating, always plotting, always trying to make it happen. And was how Satan was working to corrupt Jacob with selfishness, but God kept working to get him the victory and be the avenue for Messiah. Well, you see that in Abraham and Sarah as well. Yep. I mean, Abraham lied about Sarah, her relationship with him. Sarah brought Hagar into the the, the marital bed and and then learned from that lesson. Yep. So I mean, there, there's there's learning consequences so, are suspended. Learning is a, learning is occurring. So, so, all these people. So so add that one in. Uh, Satan tempts them to bring in Hagar to try to corrupt the avenue for which Messiah is going to come. Right. Okay. So again, you see that the the the, the theme of the coming Messiah is the key to understanding all these stories and the back channel of what's happening. Joseph. We see Satan working to destroy the branch of the human family by stirring up jealousy in Joseph's brothers, who inspire inspires them to sell him as a slave. I personally believe that the famine that struck was of Satan's doing. You get evidence in places like the book of Job that Satan does have the ability to affect the weather. Okay, And so if the famine, um, they die by starvation, he snuffs out this branch of the family. And so I think Satan is working through starvation, but God works through Joseph, who trusts him, to put him in a place where he can provide the resources to keep open the branch of the family for the Messiah to come. Yes. Were there any prophecies at that point um, detailing that Judah was the the, the son that the the Christ was the Messiah was going to come through, or might Satan have thought Joseph was the favored one of 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 uh, well, there is an early prophecy that Judah would be the one. I don't remember if it was before. It's in Genesis, before but I don't know if it's Joseph. before or after this. So I have to go check that. Um, but there's an early prophecy that, that, that the will not depart from Judah. I think it was actually Jacob um, giving that prophecy at the end of his life, so it might not have been given quite yet. 
Yeah. So and it Joseph, could be the same. Joseph, Joseph was the yeah. favored one, and, and he was the avenue for the Messiah. And he was the one who was getting the dreams from God. Right. So it could have been exactly uh, attacking Joseph for that reason as well. God permitted all this to happen to keep open avenue for Messiah. And then Moses. There was a prophecy early on that uh, that um, to Abraham that uh, his descendants would be slaves. That was early on. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is this is uh, God foresaw um, Moses after God's victory over Satan's plan through Joseph. He, Satan says, "Starve him out." Tries to destroy Joseph. Joseph's elevated. Joseph uh, stores food. Joseph uh, protects the rest of the family line. Satan's foiled again. And so Satan now stirs up new leadership in Egypt after God blesses them in Goshen. They move to Goshen. They, they, they multiply and, and, and increase in numbers. And, and God stirs up the leaders, new leadership in Egypt. Satan stirs up Excuse the leadership. Excuse me. Thank you. Satan stirs up new leadership in Egypt. Uh, who is jealous of the children of Israel and therefore enslaves them in order to demoralize them, to harden their hearts, to sear their consciences, and to corrupt them into pagan worship practices. God sends Moses. Uh, But Satan inspires Pharaoh to kill all the male babies, to try to shut down the deliverer and keep the people enslaved in order to destroy and prevent the, uh, the Messiah from coming. God intervenes, places Moses in Pharaoh's family. To, to give Moses a great education in organizational systems and governing lots of people. Um, Moses uh, is tempted, though, to use his own strength and goes out and murders an overseer, and Satan uses this to uh, undermine Moses' own confidence and the people in Moses, and Moses flees into the wilderness. But God is not done with, with, with Moses, and God continues to develop him over the next 40 years to prepare him to be someone who trusts him completely and leads the people out of slavery, establish uh, these people as God's helpers in the plan of salvation. Throughout this entire story, we can see the struggle between God working to bring the Messiah and Satan working to destroy the branch of the human family, the false gods of Egypt corrupting the minds of the Hebrews, the ten plagues designed to show that where all those beliefs and those gods were false in order to turn the hearts and minds back to the true God, Yahweh, Korah, Dathan, and Byram leading a rebellion uh, to try to get the people to turn against Yahweh, and God intervening to remove that source of rebellion to keep the people on path towards uh, keeping open the plan of salvation, the golden calf, and then the destruction of the golden calf, making them drink it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, showing that this is just nothing. Now, again, teaching them and keeping open path for Messiah. The next thing listed in Hebrews 11 is the people passing through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army drowning in the Red Sea. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. Satan driving the Egyptian army. Let's okay. We couldn't corrupt them. We couldn't destroy them. We couldn't harden their hearts. They're being let out. The plan of salvation is still going forward. The Messiah is still coming. Let's kill them all. Let's send this army after them. Kill them all. And so God opens the avenue for them to pass through the Red Sea and puts the Egyptian army in the grave, keeping open avenue for Messiah. This is not an act of punishment. It's an act of keeping open avenue for Messiah. Rahab, listed next, hid the spies and lied. She lied in faith. I always like to say that. Took faith. She trusted God. She put herself on God's side. Acted in a way that was willing to sacrifice her own life. God works to establish Israel as his agents for the communication of truth to free hearts and minds from sin and ultimately the rival of the Messiah. Satan works through these pagan groups to try and destroy Israel, infect them further. So what we see happening now, either pagan worship practices will be 
uh, embraced, or the people go to war and try to hurt them. So God is working to remove these influences from Israel to keep open avenue for Messiah. But I want to notice, I want you to notice something. God, as demonstrated by what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, had the capacity to simply annihilate and eradicate entire population. He could have done that. But God's actions to keep open avenue for Messiah are always the least amount necessary. He didn't eradicate all the people in Canaan. He didn't have them come out and, and, and come into an uninhabited land and just move in. He took out or intervened in the least amount possible, like a surgeon who excises the least amount of tissue to get rid of the cancer. Okay, Because God is not about punishing sin or killing people. He is about keeping open avenue for Messiah to save people. That's the storyline. You see the next one, Gideon. And what's the theme? Same theme. Satan stirs up enemies trying to destroy the people, the avenue for Messiah. God uses Gideon to drive them back and keep open avenue for Messiah. Barak, same thing. Sisera was inspired by Satan to try and destroy God's people, closing the avenue for Messiah. Deborah instructs Barak to oppose Sisera, and God gives him the victory, keeping open avenue for Messiah. Samson, next one. We see, in other words, I want you to see this. It's a complete integrated, one-story line. God calls Samson to be a champion, to hold back the Philistines and, and uh, the enemies of God, but Satan attacks and corrupts Samson through lust and selfishness. Samson, in the end, still destroys many of God's enemies and negates some of their influence, keeping open avenue for Messiah. Jephthah, same thing. Many people miss the story of Jephthah. It's not really tough when you understand the theme, because here's the theme. Satan inspires at the time of Jephthah the Ammonites to attack Israel, seeking to destroy the people of Israel, shutting down the avenue of Messiah. But through Jephthah, he trusts God, and he leads the forces of Israel against the Ammonites, driving them back, thus keeping open the avenue for Messiah. That's the point. Oh, I'm thinking of a different story. No, the Jephthah story, then he says, and what, thanks you for this victory. Whatever comes out first in my home, okay, I will... So it is I the will, same guy. <laughs> yes, it's the same guy. But, but it, wasn't, it wasn't about that. Right. It was showing that, that even though his faith really wasn't necessarily so matured, and of course there's arguments whether he did offer his daughter or did not, but that's not the point. Mm. Jephthah's not there because of his daughter he's there because by faith god was able to use him to stop the destruction of the of the messiah's um, family line and keep open the avenue of messiah that's why he's there david satan works through the philistines to try and and uh um destroy israel god uh, thus closing the avenue for messiah god works through david to kill goliath to rout the philistines satan corrupts saul and seeks to use saul to shut down to kill david uh Thus, destroying the avenue of Messiah. But God, again, preserves David, seeking to keep open avenue for Messiah. So, do you see, from start to finish, this is a key to understanding Scripture. There's one Scripture overriding story. Yes, there are immediate contexts. Something's happening in that life. But there is an overarching theme of Scripture. And if we don't have that overarching theme of Scripture, then we read these stories and draw false conclusions. Further, if we have the false law construct, we read this as God punishing unbelievers while he's rewarding the believers. No. That's why I gave you the history of China, history of the Chavan group in South America. God wasn't punishing these people during the same time in history because 
God is not the source of inflicted punishment for sin. God, the whole story is focusing on Messiah, the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head and bring life and immortality to light. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and, and after Adam and Eve divested and diverted from your design and methods and corrupted themselves with fear and self-centeredness, sin, that you did not abandon us, Lord, but you promised right there in, in Eden that you would come and you would fix the problem. And we are so thankful that you did come and you worked so hard throughout history to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And now we ask that your spirit will come and, and take all that you have won out for us and reproduce it in our hearts and mind, restoring us to like character, to love and trust you, and, and then enlightening us to be more effective, to be able to eliminate distortions and falsehoods and present the truth to set hearts and minds free that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.